I would like to call attention once more to the words found in the 8th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, reading verses 28, 29, and 30. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, we spent most of last Friday evening, you remember, in preparing ourselves for a consideration of this great argument that the Apostle works out in these three verses. We showed the necessity for such a preparation. We must be prepared not only in mind but also in spirit, and particularly we saw in spirit. And we considered the nature of this great truth which we have here in that general way. Now we are looking together at what is known as the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints. And I have ventured to say that this is the ultimate form of assurance. Uh, even above anything that we may know subjectively, and we've seen reason for emphasizing that in as strong a manner as we can in dealing with verses 14, 15, and 16. But uh, this is the ultimate basis and ground of all assurance. And having therefore prepared ourselves, and let me appeal to you to remind yourselves of that preparation. You come with humility. We come as realizing our own smallness and insignificance. We come not to prove that we are right about anything. We come to consider the teaching of the Word of God, and particularly we come to look into the mind of God himself as he has been pleased to reveal it. The ground on which we are standing is therefore holy ground, and we must conduct and comport ourselves in the suitable and appropriate manner. Very well. Having reminded you of that, we now come to consider the statement, the argument more in detail. Now, the vital statement here is this phrase at the end of verse 28. People forget that, of course. You see, we are all in the flesh, as I've been reminding you, and we tend to take up certain words and they become catchwords and slogans, cliches, phrases. And because of that terrible sinful tendency within us, we often miss what is much greater and more important, and much more important, therefore, than all these great terms with which we are so familiar, such as foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification, greater than them all is the phrase about according to his purpose. That's the greatest of them all. Indeed, you don't understand any of the others until you understand something about this. 
I've already reminded you more than once that the business of verses 29 and 30 is just to expound that phrase according to his purpose. Here's the key to it all. Here is the central and the cardinal statement. What then does it mean? Well, let's look at it like this. First and foremost, it is a declaration that God has a definite plan and purpose with respect to salvation. Now, these words, according to, are important. What do they mean? Well, they mean in accordance with. Or, if you like, they can be translated because of. You see, what he's saying is this that we have been called in accordance with God's purpose. We have been called because of God's purpose. The great comforting promise is that God will overrule all things for the good of those who love him. Those, in other words, who are the called. But why are they called? Why do they love God? The answer is, it's because of his purpose. This is the ultimate explanation of everything. In other words, the calling, go further back, the foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification, are all because of his purpose. So the fount and the source and the origin of everything is this great and grand purpose of God. What does it mean? Well, it means, you see, that God has decided and decreed and planned a way of salvation. That's what it means, this purpose. Now, we sometimes use this term about ourselves, and in uh, the scriptures you will find uh, the same term used about people, that they purposed to do this, which means they intended to, they decided to, they planned to, they'd made arrangements to. But here we are being told about something that God has decided to do, something he has decreed to do, something he has planned to do. And it's a very great term. There uh, is no doubt at all, of course, but that this is the great theme of the whole of the Bible. That's what the Bible really is. The Bible, I know, is a collection of books, but it's only one great theme. And this is the theme that runs through it from the beginning to the end. It is nothing but the purpose of God. And you can describe the Bible as the book in which we have a declaration of the purpose, the unfolding of the purpose, and the carrying out of this grand and glorious purpose of God. That is the theme of the Bible from beginning to end. And I make bold to go further and say this, that nobody can really understand the Bible and its teaching unless one understands something about this teaching concerning God's purpose. It is something that is implicit in the whole teaching of the Bible everywhere. And if we don't see this unifying principle in the whole declaration, plain teaching, history, everything else, well then, I say we've got a wrong or a very inadequate view of the teaching of the Bible. 
Here is the unifying principle for all the varied, varying teaching which you find in this great and long book. So that you see that here we are dealing with something that is absolutely basic, not only to the understanding of salvation, but even to an understanding of the Bible itself as the Word of God. Now then, I say that you can't read your Bible at all intelligently without seeing that. It's implicit everywhere in the teaching of the Bible. But here we've got it stated in an explicit manner. Now, that's an important distinction, isn't it? The Bible adopts the two methods of conveying truth. Sometimes it puts the truth to us in suggestion. It's there, but you've got to find it. You've got to pick it out, as it were. It's implicit in what it's saying. But then, in addition to that, it picks it out, makes a, an explicit declaration of it. And that is what we have in this particular phrase that we're looking at in this 28th verse. Of course, it's not confined to this. Let me give you some other examples of the same thing. He will say the same thing in the next chapter, chapter 9, in verse 11. He says, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. There it is again. God's purpose of election. But there is a particularly good statement of all this, to which we must turn in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And in the first chapter, let me read to you the salient uh, statements which I want to emphasize. Take the fifth verse, verse 5, in the first chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now that's exactly the same thing. His will and his purpose are one. What God purposes, God wills. It is according to the good pleasure of his will. But then you've got it again in verse 9. Having made known unto us, he says, the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. Now there it is again. And that's a very wonderful statement in it. God has purposed in himself the salvation of this people. It's according to the good pleasure of his will. Yes, that's the same thing. It's all according to the good pleasure, to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. God's own purpose. Arising in his own mind and becoming expressed in his will and in his action. A tremendous statement. But you've got it again in verse 11, in that Ephesians 1. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. There it is, it's precisely the same thing. Paul's referring here to the Jews and how they had obtained an inheritance in this great salvation because they'd been predestinated. Why were they predestinated? Oh, they were predestinated because of, according to, in accordance with the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, there are some very notable statements of it. 
But there's another one in the second epistle to Timothy, in the first chapter, in the ninth verse. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. You see, he says, we have been saved and called with an holy calling, not because of our works, not as the result of our works, not in accordance with our works. Well, how then? Well, because of, in accordance with his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now then, here are these explicit statements. They're the main explicit statements with regard to this great matter. And what it's telling us, I say, is this, that God has decided upon a certain course of action. He has taken a decision, and he has planned something, and he is putting that plan into operation. Now, that's the first thing which we find in this remarkable statement concerning the purpose of God. The second point uh, is one which you've seen coming out in some of these quotations which I've given to you uh, as to when it was planned and purposed. When did this purpose of God come into being? And you notice the answer. The answer is that it is before the foundation of the world. Now that's a very important point. This is made quite clear in many places in the scripture. That God's purpose is a purpose which he decided upon, and he planned, and he decreed, and he arranged, and worked out, if one may so speak, in his own mind, before the creation of the world. Now, you can't uh, read uh, the accounts of the working out of the purpose without seeing that. For instance, take Genesis 3.15 again, to which one is so constantly having to return. Uh, when God announces, as a part of the punishment of men, because of his rebellion, that uh, part of the punishment is to be that there shall be this enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But he makes a promise. He says, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. Now, in giving the promise, he was also indicating his purpose. It wasn't a sudden decision there. This is a part of an anterior decision. Something that had been decided prior to that but which God, in giving the promise of ultimate salvation, is making clear as he speaks. In other words, in all the prophecies concerning the coming of the Son of God, you again have what I call these implicit statements about the grand and glorious purpose of God in salvation. But we've got again certain explicit statements. Now, a very good one is to be found in 1 Corinthians 2, 7. The apostle, you see, is writing to these Corinthians and says in verse 6, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. 
Now there it is as plain as anything can be. God ordained it. That's another way of saying that he purposed it. He purposed it, planned it, decreed it, ordained it. And he did so before the world. Before the world was even created. God had purposed this and had ordained it. And you notice it is to our glory. Exactly the same thing as we have here. But again, you get this once more in the epistle to the Ephesians. It's in Ephesians 1, 4, the verse before the verse that I quoted. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. There it is. That's when it happened. Before the foundation of the world. Then you noticed it in that quotation from 2 Timothy 1.9. The apostle goes on repeating this thing. Why? Well, because there's nothing more important that we, than that we should grasp this great teaching. We have been saved. He's called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And you'll find the same sort of thing is said about our Lord himself in the first epistle of Peter. Peter is careful to make this same point. He's talking about this great salvation. So he says in the first epistle, first chapter, verse 20, about our Lord, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, etc. But the, for, the thing was foreordained, all that's happened in Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And so you get that well-known statement in the book of Revelation about our names being written in the book of life of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now there's a dispute about that as to whether the foundation of the world refers to the fact that our names were written in the book before or whether it merely refers to the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It seems to me quite clear that both things are true because both things, as I've shown you, are said quite explicitly elsewhere in the scriptures. Now then, what I want to emphasize is this. The plan of salvation did not come into the mind of God after the fall of man. It was before that. It was before even the creation of the world. You've got to realize this about this great purpose of God. It was something that he did, something he planned and purposed and ordained and decreed in its completion before man or the world were ever created. So we must add this, that it was not only thought of after the fall, there are no readjustments in this. There have been no readjustments as time has gone on. Now you will find certain people teach that kind of thing. You will find that they teach this, that uh, God uh, dealt as it were uh, with the children of Israel uh, in repeatedly new manners and ways that he was dealing in a kind of experimental manner with them according to their teaching in some kind, of, some kind of empirical manner, trying this, and when he found it didn't work, trying something else. They teach that about the giving of the law. 
They say God gave the law to the children of Israel uh, as a possible way of salvation. He said to them, if you keep this law, it will save you. So he was trying that way. Then when it didn't work, well, then he began to give promises in the prophets that he would send a deliverer. But of course, that's just to deny completely this great teaching concerning the purpose of God. It's a, an utter denial of these passages I've already quoted to you, which says, which say that all this was planned before the foundation of the world. Then you know it's carried even further, this wrong and false teaching. You will find it in the notes of a certain well-known uh, edition of the Bible. They don't hesitate to say the, this, that uh, when eventually God sent his Son into the world, the Son came and preached the kingdom of God. And he offered an entry into the kingdom of God to the Jews. And if only they'd believed him and accepted it, the kingdom of God would have been established there and then. But they say, unfortunately, the Jews rejected the offer. They rejected the offer of entry into the kingdom there and then. So because of that, God had to introduce this other way, the death of his son, and the church came into being. Church had never been thought of before, they say. It had to come in as a kind of temporary measure, a temporary expedient, because the Jews had rejected the teaching of the kingdom and the offer of entry into the kingdom. All this had to be improvised. It's a kind of improvisation. The death of Christ is an improvisation. It needn't have happened if only the Jews had believed the message of the kingdom. You'll find all this in the notes to which I'm referring. And so they regard the death of Christ upon the cross and all that has happened ever since in the church age as just some kind of a side, as it were, some kind of digression in the great process of God. Well, now, this, of course, is just to deny completely this great and glorious teaching concerning the purpose of God in eternity before the very foundation of the world before the creation of men at all. Now, you see, that is what is called dispensationalism. And it runs mad and it becomes a denial of the plain teaching of the scripture. Not to, to add to that, that it becomes almost at times something which one would have to designate as blasphemy, as I'm hoping to show you in a moment. Well, you see the importance of being clear about these things. This purpose came into being before the foundation of the world. There's nothing contingent. There's nothing temporary about it. It's not an expedient suddenly thought of because of something else. It has always been God's purpose and God's great plan for salvation. Very well, the third point I would raise is this. By whom is this purpose carried out? And the answer is quite clearly that it is ultimately by God himself. Now I wonder whether you've ever noticed that as you've read these three verses. Three times over we are told that it's God who does it. Five times I should have said. Five times over. Listen to this. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he does it. He also did predestine it to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, the Son, might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. 
Moreover, whom he did predestine it, we've already had that, haven't we? Them he also called. He called. It's God. That's the third. And whom he called, them he also justified. There's the fourth. But it's he who did it. And lastly, whom he justified, them he also glorified. He did it. God. Five times over, we are told in these three verses that it is God himself who planned the purpose, who thought of it, who brought it into being. It is God himself, ultimately, who is carrying it out and putting it into operation. Now, this is again an aspect of truth that needs to be impressed upon our minds. There are many good Christian people who start and end with the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't misunderstand me, my dear friends. Great glory is to be given to the Lord. I'm going to bring that out. But you mustn't give all the glory to the Son. The glory is to be given to the three blessed persons in the Holy Trinity. Never forget this. It is God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It's a terrible thing to forget the Father. And there are many who do. They always talk about the Lord. They pray to him. And the Father and the Holy Spirit might very well be non-existent. My friends, there's something wrong, isn't there? How can we be so unscriptural? Why do we do this? What is the cause, you think, of this? Let's look into these things. Let's examine them. This great statement makes us do so. We are the called according to the purpose of God, the Father. It is his purpose. And then take the statement. Here we are at season of Advent. When the fullness of the times was come. The Lord Jesus Christ came out of heaven. No, no. God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. It's the Father who sent him. We mustn't forget this. Still less must we do what some have done, who represent the Son as one who has had to persuade the Father to forgive us. They've so concentrated on the Son that they regard the Father as someone against us. And the Son has to plead with the Father. That's their way of interpreting the intercession of the Son. But it's entirely wrong. It is terribly wrong. It's the Father who sent him to do all that he did. Listen again. Well, we'll find it in a few verses later on in this great chapter. He who spared not his own son, says verse 32, but delivered him up for us all. We know something from the scriptures of what this cost the son, what it meant to the son, the agony and the shame and the spitting and all the rest of it. But oh, can you imagine? No, we can't imagine what it meant to the father. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? It's the father who's done all this. So it is ultimately, I emphasize, the work of the father himself. It's his purpose, and he sets it in motion. But he does so in actual practice through the son by sending him, and so on. And then the Spirit, whom he sends again through the Son. The Father gives the Spirit to the Son, and the Son sends the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, doesn't this open out a glorious vista to you as you face your Bible? 
What's the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament is but the outworking of this purpose of God, preparing for the coming of his Son. Here's the crucial event, but he's preparing for it. That's what you've got in your Old Testament, this great plan, being the way is being prepared. Ideas are given, previews are given, suggestions are given, and so on. Then the Son comes, and the Son does the, that essential work which he alone could do, taking on him human nature, identifying himself with us, giving perfect obedience to the law, bearing the punishment of our sins, conquering death and the grave, being raised, rising to justice. That's the special work of the Son. Then the Holy Spirit is sent. That climactic event again on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was shed forth so abundantly. A vital part. And he's going on with the work. What for? Well, the purpose of God is being carried out. It is he who convinces and convicts of sin, as we shall see. It is he who brings us into the church. It's through him the call comes, and we are added to the church. The purpose of God's going on, this glorious purpose, through the work of the Spirit now, applying the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. And the end will be when the Son comes back again. That's a part of the purpose. We've been considering it when we were dealing with verses 17 to 23. This glory that the whole creation is waiting for, groaning and travailing. The manifestation of the sons of God. Yes, first the manifestation of the Son himself. And then our being transformed into his glory, even in our bodies. Now, there it is. But you see, it's the Father's purpose. It's the Father who set it all going. It's the Father who's controlling it all. And thus, the grand purpose will be brought to completion. Very well. That leads me to my fourth point. The absolute certainty of the carrying out of the purpose. Now then, this is something that is again basic and fundamental. That's the whole object of this statement that we are considering. Paul is giving comfort in that way. He says, look here, this is your final comfort. That if you are in the purpose of God, it's all right. Everything must work together for good for you because of the fact that it's his purpose. You're in his purpose. There's no sense in this statement if it isn't absolutely sure and certain of being carried out to the last iota with nothing missing whatsoever. Now, the word glorified at the end of verse 30, I should have thought, would be enough in and of itself to establish this point once and forever. You notice what he says, whom, whom moreover whom he did predestinate. He's done it. These are errorists. These are in the past, that errorist past. It's a completed thing. He has predestinated whom he did predestinate. Them he also called. He's done so. And whom he called, them he hath also justified. And them he also, whom he justified, them he also glorified. He's already done it. You see, there are foolish people who say, you can be justified and then lose it, but you can't. These are inevitable links in the chain. If you've been justified, you've been glorified. Your final glorification has already happened in the purpose of God. These are all their past tenses to give the absolute proof of the certainty. It's the most daring statement in many ways in the whole of Scripture, this statement that we are already glorified. We are as glorified as we are justified. That's his argument. 
And that's the way I say that we are able to say that this is something which is absolutely certain. It must be carried out. Now, verse 31, of course, puts that as a channel, challenge. What shall we then say to these things? It's a good way of putting it. The answer is, if God be for us, who can be against us? And the answer is, nobody. If God, being what he is, is for us, who can be against us? Very well. Now then, verses, uh, chapters 9 to 11, which people are so anxious to get on to, Do you know what they are? Well, as I said last Friday night, I think it was, you know, chapters 9 to 11 are very similar to chapters 6 and 7. They were only written to deal with difficulties and with objections. Here's the statement of the doctrine. They don't state the doctrine so much. They simply apply proofs. They're answering queries and questions. That's never as good as the statement of the doctrine itself. Their explication, here's the crucial thing. And if there's to be any difficulties to be here, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are quite inevitable in the light of this. They're not the place to go to, to rush to, and to concentrate on. Here's the great doctrine. Now, it's important we should view chapters 9, 10, and 11 in the right way, and that is what they are, and they're meant to be nothing beyond that just dealing with difficulties and problems in the minds of certain people. But, now then, I say that this absolute certainty of the carrying out of the purpose is something that is proved in many ways in the Scripture. It's proved, of course, in all the history of the Old Testament. Look at those children of Israel. Look at the obstacles, look at the difficulties, look at them themselves. God has made a promise, certain things are going to happen. Well, you look, it looks at times as if they cannot happen. Everything's going against them. But, you know, it does happen, doesn't it? That's the whole message of the Old Testament, that what God said, God has done. What God promised, God has fulfilled. That's the value of the history of the Old Testament. You say, I'm not interested in the Assyrians and in the Chaldeans and so on. Well, you ought to be, my friend. These are the people who rise up to try and stop God's purpose, but they can't do it. They're brushed aside. God allows much to happen. And people say, ah, God's purpose is defeated, is it? Read the history, and you'll find it isn't. In spite of everything, it goes on. Well, now, that is, of course, the, the great object, as I say, of chapters 9, 10, and 11. That whatever the circumstances, they will not be allowed to prevent the carrying out of this great purpose. In strange and odd ways, God brings it to pass. God moves in a mysterious way. He has wonders to perform. That's it. Well, now, that's, that's a summary of the teaching of the whole of the Old Testament. But, of course, you get it particularly in the prophetic teaching of the Old Testament. If God's purpose isn't secure, you'd never have had such a thing as prophecy. Here are people prophesying eight centuries before the thing happens. Well, how can it be right? The only answer is it's a part of God's purpose. So we are told by Peter in the first epistle, again in the first chapter, in verses 10, 11, and 12, of which salvation, 
The prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost which sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Now that could never have happened if the purpose of God wasn't absolutely certain and sure. It's as certain as this, if I may use an anthropomorphism, it's as certain as this, that God could take the risk of announcing it eight centuries before it happened. And it happened exactly and literally as he said, and especially in detail. Spend your Christmas vacation, my friend, in working it out. He told them he was to be born in Bethlehem, and he was. He tells them the time in a mysterious manner in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. That's why Paul talks about when the fullness of the time had come. It was all planned to the last minute. Everything absolutely perfect. Even this, you see, that the Roman Empire should have conquered Palestine and they should have made their great highways for the gospel to spread everywhere throughout the then civilized world. It's all in the purpose of God before the foundation of the world. And the time element is particularly instructive in this particular connection. But here Paul, in Ephesians 1.10, seems to sum it all up by putting it like this. I'll read verse 9 again. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. What? That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, what a phrase, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, God's ultimate goal, in other words, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. God, says an Old Testament word, sees the end from the beginning. And he has seen the dispensation of the fullness of times. It's all there, and it's all absolutely certain. God isn't going on tentatively, trying, failing, modifying, doing... The whole plan, the whole purpose is certain and secure from the very beginning to the very end and nothing has failed, nothing ever will fail, nothing ever can fail. Why? Well, for this reason, that the character of God demands this. Had you ever thought of that? This is the way to approach these terms, predestination, calling and so on. Start with the character of God. I say the character of God demands that the thing is certain for this reason. Did you notice in Ephesians, have you ever noticed when you read that first chapter, he keeps on repeating this phrase. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Then he's got it in verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. Verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. What's it mean? Well, you see, it means this. That all this brings us into this whole matter of the glory of God. Listen to Ephesians 2.7. Ephesians is the great uh, epistle in many ways on all this. Verse uh, 7 of chapter 2. 
Paul has been describing, you see, how when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. God did it all, remember. By grace he hath saved, and hath raised us up together. God has raised us up together with Christ, and has made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? That, in order that, in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You see, God's grace is involved. If anything went wrong here, it would be a reflection upon the grace of God and upon the kindness of God. But it can't. God's doing this in order that the ages to come might have some glimpse into the grace and the kindness of God. And then we've got another wonderful statement of it in Ephesians 3.10. Why has all this happened? To make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent, here's the intent, that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by or through the church the manifold wisdom of God. You see, God through the church, through this process of salvation, is showing, displaying to these principalities and powers in the heavenly places his manifold wisdom. Well, what would happen to the manifold wisdom of God if it broke down, if it failed? If man could frustrate it by saying, I don't believe or I'm going out of it. What would happen to the manifold wisdom of God? The character of God is involved in this, my friends. You see, what is the purpose and object of it all? Well, Paul has again put it in 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 28. Here's the grand objective. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, this is the Son, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. With what object? That God might be all in all. That's the argument which is given us in the scripture, so let me summarize it like this before I finish. All this, I say, the certainty of it all, must be true of necessity. These words, according to, because of, in accordance with, really establish it in and of themselves. It is God's purpose, it's God's plan, it's God's resolve, it is God's will. And my dear friends, when God decides to do a thing, God does it. God isn't like a man. You and I propose, we start, we give up, or we can be stopped by somebody else, but God is God. And when God wills a thing, it's virtually done. When God decides, it's done. When God purposes, it's carried out. These things are identical in God, because God is God. God is light. Is the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Listen to the Apostle putting it again in chapter 11 of this epistle of ours. It's there in verse 29. He puts it like this. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. He never goes back on them. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. It must be so. Otherwise God isn't God. If anything could prevent or frustrate God's purpose... It would mean that this something that could frustrate him is stronger than God, which is inconceivable. Any failure in the carrying out of this purpose would mean the failure and the defeat of God himself. 
God made man at the beginning. He made him in his own image. He made him perfect. He gave him an opportunity. He failed. Is God going to do that again? If he does, if he did, it would mean that the devil would again be supreme and he'd be the God of this world. No, no. It is in order to defeat him that God's purposes come in and it is to succeed that God may defeat his every enemy, the devil included. Salvation is not ultimately for your sake and mine. Salvation is ultimately for the glory of God. God in salvation is vindicating himself. He is manifesting himself to the whole universe. He is displaying his everlasting and eternal glory. That is why it cannot fail and it will not fail. The purpose of God is absolutely certain and sure. So we can end by joining Augustus Top Lady in saying, Things future nor things that are now, nor all things below nor above, can make him his purpose for God, or sever my soul from his love. Very well, we leave it at that tonight. We shall go on to consider to whom this purpose applies, and then we shall consider how it's been carried out in detail. But, my dear friends, here's the vital thing. It is God's purpose, and the whole character of God is involved in the completion of this purpose. He's vindicating himself. He is manifesting his manifold wisdom to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The ages to come will have to bow before him in acknowledgement that he is God, that he is all in all, and that beside him there is none other. We are the called according to his purpose. O Lord our God, we come before thee in amazement and astonishment. We come, O God, nevertheless with grateful and with thankful hearts, amazed that we should be in this purpose, Amazed that thou hast ever looked upon us, great, eternal Jehovah, who dwellest in the light that is unapproachable, who sayest the end from the beginning, who madest everything out of nothing, that thou shouldest ever have purposed this salvation at all, and that thou should, shouldst ever have purposed that we should be in it. Oh God, wilt thou read the praise, the thanksgiving that is in our hearts. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us. Now this night, Throughout the remainder of this hour, short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and until 
we shall be safely in the glory, seeing our Savior face to face, seeing and experiencing the fulfillment of the word, the promise, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.